That was a fun song. <laughs> Leviticus 25. A sabbatical year, a Sabbath year in the year of Jubilee, 55 verses. <laughs> Let's see if we can tackle that tonight. Uh, Father, thank you for the word. Um, thank you that we live under the new covenant. We can examine these truths and look and see how they point towards your son. So we ask you that you would uh, give us great joy as we see the release of captives and slaves, the forgiveness of debt, all of these truths that are in this passage relating to the nation of Israel, but see it fulfilled in Jesus and see ourselves as the captives are set free. So, Lord, uh, may you be blessed by what we talk about here tonight, Lord. Thanks for Hayward. We appreciate his leadership in our worship. Lord, bless him. I'm grateful for him. In Jesus' name, amen. They say the year of Jubilee was like uh, an end of a war. Um, many historians I read said when that 50th year would come around, there was just a great weight lifted off as though a long war had ended. And the nation just rejoiced during this time of Jubilee when they walked with the Lord. This is a long passage, as I said, it's 55 verses. And so what I did this evening is I just broke it down into 10 sections. And again, we won't be able to read all of it, but I hope I can sum it up for you to uh, help you understand what God is telling Moses and how they're incorporating this. But I also want you to see Jesus Christ as the great, the great fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. Well, number one, we see that there's a land and its Sabbath rest. You notice in verses 1 and 2, Then the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Well, right off the bat, you see that these commands, these laws are given and they're to be received with faith. They're not there. In fact, this verse here, verse 2, verse 1 and 2, help you understand they're still at the base of Mount Sinai. They're, they're not even close to the border of the promised land. They're still in the desert. They're still in dry times, and yet God is giving promises of something in the future. But think about this. If the nation will obey God and allow themselves to follow his ordained leader, Moses, and they obey these commands, they're just a few short months away from entering the promised land. And you know what happened, right? Sadly, they disobeyed, right? And the difference between believing and obeying and disobedience was 40 long years in the wilderness. In fact, so long till everyone 20 and older died. That whole generation died off. But they do eventually come into the promised land. And, and they were, when they were to come into that land, they were to apply very familiar instructions. Just like the Sabbath day, the land was to have its own Sabbath day. And so that Sabbath rest was 
to be given to the land every seven years. You'll notice as you read down through uh, verse 7 there. And this would take an act of faith. You would really have to trust God again. This was that you had to believe that God would provide enough for you for six years that you could not farm and produce anything to eat by hand. You'd have to trust God that he'd provide that for you. This was an act of faith. Did they believe God? Were they going to follow him? God had been teaching them this principle since they came out of the land of Egypt. He'd been giving them manna every six days, right? And then on the seventh, they were not to gather. They were to trust God that the, that the manna they gathered on the sixth day would be enough and would not go bad, even though if they did it on a day other day than that, it would go bad. They had to have faith that God would supply for them. So God had been teaching them to trust him in more of a micro kind of a Sabbath time, right? Now we're talking more macro. Now this is resting for an entire year. Furthermore, what was interesting about this seventh year Sabbath is during the Feast of Tabernacle, the entire law was read to them. So they combined it with the Feast of Tabernacles. The whole law was read to them and, and it was something like them gaining a, a, a Bible certificate from Christ Bible College each seventh year to be reminded of who God was and what God had asked of them to obey him. Now you'll notice in verses 3 through 7 there is this unprecedented agriculture practice here. He, he calls literally for no grain crops or fruit-bearing plants to be plowed or to be planted, but to be given this sabbatical and a, and a very radical demonstration that the land belongs to him. The land's his, not the Israelites. He says that over and over throughout this chapter. Now, during this sabbatical, God calls for all systematic planting and harvesting uh, to come to an end by humans. To anything that the land had that could produce without human aid, they were to, to, to eat of that. So if there was already existing crops there or trees that were already existing that they didn't plant that year, they could eat the food from that. It was kind of like they were back in the wilderness trusting the Lord to provide every seventh year. Now this seventh year Sabbath observation was a powerful testimony that they could depend on God or they could depend on themselves. What, what were they going to do? And it was a true test of whether they would live by faith or live by sight. So God desires people who trust him every day. He's not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He desires us to live by faith, not by sight. And yet, brothers and sisters, is that not a difficult statement? To live by faith and not by sight. See, their trust in God was, was something that had to be very real. Can you imagine every one of us taking the seventh year of our life off and producing nothing but trusting God for that? In some ways, that would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? But another way, how would you, your mind begins to go, how do we pay bills? Do, most of us live, what, paycheck to paycheck or so forth like that. How would we survive? Would we be able to trust God through that? 
God was out for a lot of reasons, do things for a lot of reasons. Um, one, he wanted them to trust him, but he also, uh, he knew his earth, and he knew what had happened to the earth when it had fallen, and there was quite a wise management of land in here. Given a sabbatical rest to the land would restore nutrients from the soil. A lot of farming practices today still practice similar things. Um, uh, we had alfalfa. Alfalfa really pulls certain nutrients out of the soil, I mean, extremely. And so after six, seven years, depending on how stemmy the alfalfa gets, because it gets too stemmy, it doesn't sell as well or test as well, you rip out the alfalfa, and you either let it lay there for, uh, for a year, or you put it into another crop, some other grain, to put other nutrients back into it. We practice that all the time. There's lots of crop rotation and resting fields and adding new things to the soil to help regenerize the, the soil that's been replenished. During the intertestamental time, it's interesting, they had practiced some of these things, although the nation failed, and most of what we're going to talk about today they failed, in, and I'll show you that. But they practiced certain of these things so much that Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar paused their taxes during these sabbatical years, these Sabbath years that came. And so they were known for how they handled their land and how God provided for them. Matthew Poole in his commentary said this, um, this suggests that the sabbatical years put an entire nation on the same playing field. Whether you're rich or poor, you had to trust in God to provide food for you. And, and hopefully this helped them to have compassion during the other years for those who were not as well off. But as Israel fell away and they pursued the dead gods of the nations around them, which was their great sinful downfall, they began to ignore this command. And it's written all through Scripture in different places. One of them is in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 20 through 21. This is at the end of Israel's reign in the land, particularly the southern kingdom, northern, has been long gone um, to Assyria and then taken over by Babylon. Now Babylon is on the gates of, of, of the southern tribes of, Israel, of Jerusalem itself, and they're about ready to take it. And this is what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. Those who have escaped from the sword, he will carry away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia. That's when there they're going to be released to about 50,000 Jews to return to the land. Verse 21. This is to fill the, wor the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has received its Sabbaths. All the days of its de desolation is kept, it, it kept Sabbaths until, uh, excuse me, 27 years were complete. So what Jeremiah was saying, God is going to judge this nation for 70 years because they did not keep this. For every year they didn't keep it, God judged them. So we see they fell out of this obedience a long time ago. We say, well, what do Orthodox Jews do today? How do they follow this command because they reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah, so they're still striving to keep the law to produce themselves righteous before God, a very, uh, very trivial uh, righteousness. It, does, it always falls short. But today they do different things. Um, one author I read said that they will take their land, if they have land, 
they will sell the land to a Gentile, then work the land for the Gentile, and then after that year, buy it back from the Gentile, and then get it back. That's how they get around it. Others, other things I read, they said that they only cultivate um, six sevenths, six, cultivate six sevenths of the land for seven periods. So they don't cultivate at all. They always leave this one seventh of the land uncultivated, and so they do it seven, time, seven years in a row. So um, they're always trying to figure out how to get around the law instead of live for the Lord in it. The Christian, when it comes to the Christian, we realize that everything good comes from the Father above, right? James chapter 1, verse 17. And the question is, is are we content with what God gives us? And when we rest, in the, in the, when we talk about Sabbath, it's rest, right? Rest, rest in the finished work of Christ. Will we rest and trust God that he knows what we need? Can we trust him with our livelihoods? Gas is going up. Tens of crazy things happening around the world. Do we trust him? Or when things get tough, do our jobs become idols and we just try to white-knuckle, hold on, go harder in order to do more and chase that mighty dollar versus trusting the Lord? So a good question as we move on to this is what's consuming you? What, what do you need to rest from? It's a good thought in this passage. What do you need to rest from? What do you, what's causing your anxiety? What's causing the tension in your your life, because you're holding on to something that God says, look, I want you to rest from this. I think if we don't, often God loves us enough and he takes those things away so that we'll rest and trust in him. Well, second thought, in verses 8 through 12, we, kinda, we come to the year of Jubilee where we get an explanation here. Notice in verse 8, the Bible says, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of, Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years so that you will have the time of the seventh Sabbath of years, namely 49 years. Now every 49 years, through those, after they've completed those 49 years, was this year of jubilee, the Bible calls. It was something like a double Sabbath, because the crops were not planted in the land for really two years in a row. They hit the Sabbath on that seventh year, and then the completion of that seventh year was the 49th year, and so now there were back-to-back years of not planting and trusting God. But the year of Jubilee was meant to be a very joyful occasion for the nation of Israel. But it also tested their faith. Now I've got to trust God for the basic needs, not for one year, but for two. Notice in verses 8 through 10, as you just gaze at that and follow along with me. The year of Jubilee was not to be proclaimed till the 10th day of the seventh month. Now that's a very important day. It is the day of atonement. And this was um, a great day. It was a great day of annual atonement, but atonement we talked about last week of affliction, of being overwhelmed of our sins and that goat that would take its place and a scapegoat and all of that. But this was where it was to be inaugurated in, this day of Jubilee, this year of Jubilee. And many people believe that even Jesus' ministry started right about the same time. There's not quite enough evidence to know that, but it's interesting what he does. When Jesus starts his ministry, when he goes back to Nazareth in Luke 4, and you remember he takes a scroll off and he opens it to Isaiah 61 and he begins to read. Listen to what he reads to 
his probably own family, his hometown where he was raised, he reads this, Isaiah 61, 1 and following. The spirit of the, Lord of, uh, spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. A lot of the year of Jubilee was about those who were under affliction, whether slavery or had to sell their land or whatever it was, that was going to get released. So he brings good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all mourning, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, so they will call, be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, I'm not sure if this was the timing of this was the beginning of the year of Jubilee that year, but boy, Christ sure defines the year of Jubilee, doesn't he? He sets the captive free. When John the Baptist said, hey, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? He again sums up a passage much like this. I am the one who frees you from debt. <laughs> I'm the one who frees you from captive. I give the blind back their sight and for so forth. So great joy and liberty and redemption comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ and and we find such fulfillment of that. And you just think of the word jubilee. It's, it's, it's a happy word, isn't it? And I can't think of just anything greater that could take place than the final atonement of the Lamb, the final sacrifice, and the launching out of freedom of those who have been captive all their lives. Jesus has to be the greatest definition of the year of jubilee. Even during the ancient times, um, they were to proclaim with this ram's horn, so far, right, we, they would call it. And they would blow this thing loud to mark the beginning of this year of Jubilee. And when they blew this horn, there came an announcement. At the, blow, at the blowing of that horn, there was, they knew automatically that saves, slaves were free and debt was removed. That would be a pretty exciting day, wouldn't it? If you had sold yourself as a slave because... You, were, you, you, you couldn't pay your bills or one reason or another, whatever it may be, and that day, that year of Jubilee comes around and that ram's horn is blown, what an amazing thing that must have been to you. You were set free. Is at that time the slave had a choice though. He could be a bond servant for the rest of his life to that family and drive an all through his ear or he could take his freedom. See, what's amazing about the year of Jubilee was that it teaches us that up to the point that we have freedom in Jesus Christ, you, a man cannot, people cannot free themselves from their slavery. They're in bondage. And sin had created that. But God, in, for the Israelites, provided this year of Jubilee where slaves were liberated and, and no one could have have. have have absolutely understood how free that was unless you were a slave. And, I, and as I thought about that, I said, Lord, as, as much as we have so much here in America, when we get saved, we realize that the chains fell off. That's why we sing songs like that, right? The chains fell off as the horn blew the year of Jubilee. 
even our great nation uh, tries to apply some of these fundamental truths. You may have heard, heard this saying that America was founded on Judean Christian principles. On the Liberty Bell, one of these, these phrases right out of this first few verses is written, proclaim liberty throughout all the land. So it, it even had an effect on our nation, these Judeo-Christian principles here. But notice in the text with a great trumpet sound, on the Day of Atonement, they were to proclaim this year of Jubilee, and it meant more than just a land receiving rest. And we'll see in these coming verses, land, people, homes, debt, all began with a fresh start in life. Third, there was a return of the land in the year of Jubilee, verses th- uh, excuse me, 13 through 17 here. As you gaze down at that text and kind of look at that as we go along, the context indicates that, that many properties had been sold during difficult times. Uh, remember, most people lived hand to mouth. You went and farmed and you ate and you tried to put enough on the table that day. There was no refrigeration. I mean, things were very limited. And if difficult times came, whether it be drought or famine or war or what, what else would come people would fall into difficult times and often they would sell their properties. As Israel came into the promised land, there would be certain tracts of land, we know, that were given to the tribes and then to the families of the Israelites. These initial plots of land were to be permanent possessions. Those families were to never sell those properties. They could lease the land, but that lease would only be as good as long till that day, till the year of Jubilee began, and then they were invalid. When we get into Joshua 13, chapter 13 through 21, you begin to see the division of the land given to the tribes and families of Israel. And these initial portions of land were given to each clan or these large families, and they were distributed to them. And at the year of Jubilee, that land was to return to that clan thus permanently keeping that land as God intended. It was quite a, an event every 49 years as well it was supposed to happen. But even during those most difficult times, the year of Jubilee meant that no family would be without land. And if you had land, you had a way to generate income. You had a way to feed yourself. And because every 50 years, there was this opportunity to start again with maybe what you had to lose during difficult times. I got thinking about this and thought, well, maybe you're here tonight and you don't have much. <laughs> My parents passed away. They're very elderly right now. Um, they don't have much to give me. But then I thought, there's a trumpet going to blow one of these days. And I have the greatest inheritance you can ever imagine. I have a blood-bought home. <laughs> I have a citizenship in heaven. The Bible says that Jesus said he went to prepare a place for those who believe in him. And he's going to return and he's going to take us to be with himself. And and so when that great trump blasts again, God's children will gather together and they'll receive an inheritance that's incomprehensible in this life. I mean, we can't get our mind around what waits for us in heaven. Paul tries to say it this way. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait 
for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the Thessalonica church, he says in chapter 4, verse 16 and following, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Creation starts in Genesis 1, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 3, man rejects God. All of creation, including man, falls. Flood shows that God has the ability to judge every living thing. But then he begins to give the promises of Genesis 12 that there is a seed within Abraham that will be a blessing to all nations, all peoples. He's going to draw to himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Then he begins to talk about the coming restoration. And then we see that final jubilee. The year when everything is restored to the way God intended it to be. But it's only for those who believe him. All others fall under the judgment hand of our Lord. Well, notice in verse 17, he said, You shall shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Though there's an extremely graciousness when we study this to help families of Israel, this is not some socialistic system. People have looked at this and said, well, the Bible's got this socialistic look to it. No, it doesn't. Not even close to what socialism has today. The economy of Israel was under God's law. And it included this law of Jubilee. And it found this this perfect balance because it was God's law, if they would have done it God's way, between unrestrained capitalism and the oppression of a state-controlled government or economy. The year of Jubilee was a wonderful plan of God. It was meant to be part of their belief system, their freedoms, their independence as God. It, and it foreshadowed a coming Christ. And it, and it helped those who were, were poor to get back on their feet. And, and for those who were wealthy to see that God had blessed them and want to restore things and give back freedom as God had given to them. But sin just messed it all up, right? For the nation of Israel. Look with me at Jeremiah. I want to show you because they failed in so many ways that God intended so much good for them. We don't know how long they observed this. And then when they did, later on, they, it was all done out of works righteousness and they really did not observe it the way God intended. But Jeremiah and his great commands and prophecies of Zedekiah, which we mentioned in 2 Chronicles already, states a little more of their failures here and what they did and how God watched, how they lied, how they would give people freedom and pull it back. And God was recording all of this. Look at Jeremiah chapter 34, verses, so we'll start in verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the, from the Lord, the king, after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people 
who were in Jerusalem to proclaim the release to them. So things are bad. Nebuchadnezzar's outside the wall. The, ramp, the ramps are being built. It's just a matter of time they're coming in. Jeremiah's been preaching, repent, turn from your sin, go to Babylon. Don't fight him. God sent this to bring judgment to you. And so they look and say, oh, we failed to obey this. And so this command is given that each man, verse 9, should set his male servant and each man his female servant and set them free, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant, that each man would set free his male servant and each man his female servant, so that no one would keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and they set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free and brought them into subjection from male servants for female servants. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the God, The Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you shall uh, shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you six years, and you shall send him out free from you. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. And although recently you have turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming the release of his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called my name, yet you turned and profaned my name. And each man took back his servant and so forth. And you can see where the Lord is watching this. And so whatever degree, as you go back to Leviticus 25, that they observe this, we don't really know how well they have deserved this. Uh, observed this in the, once they got into the promised land, um, this system was meant to bless them. God laid down a, a law that would help them and give them freedom and to make their society function in a way where it was fair and enjoyable and they could trust the Lord, and yet they constantly rejected Him. I mean, when you think about this year of Jubilee and the Sabbath rest and all these things, this was meant to establish that no family within the nation of Israel would be permanently poor. That's the way God designed it. And and even though sin would just mess up their economic system from time to time, every 50 years there was this major reset as as well as every seventh year. They could reset and cancel out debts and liberate servants and slaves. Alex McLaren, writing on this passage, said this, All debts were remitted, slaves emancipated. So the mountains of the wealth and the valleys of poverty were to be somewhat leveled. And the nation was carried back to its original framework of simple agriculture community from small owner who sat underneath his own vine or fig tree and enjoyed what God had given him. And yet they failed you study socialism, there's an attempt to flatten that, right? Bring down the mountains of capitalism and the valleys of poor and bring that together. But every one of them fail. I've been in places. I've been to Russia. I've seen the devastation of communism and socialism. And you see the devastation of greed everywhere as well. 
But that's because the systems are not from God. God had given the nation, and again, this is for the nation of Israel. He gave them a way that would give them a, a time on earth where they would enjoy this and there would be equity and there would be a time where people would care for one another and yet they could not obey God. See, this makes Christians long for Jesus to come back, doesn't it? Makes us long for this theonomy versus all the things we see today. We desire the Lord to rule in perfection. And the more you watch the news or you see what goes on, and we're not the first Christians of these last 2,000 years to long for the return of Christ, but it's exhausting to see what man does to a kind God who shines his sun and gives rain to this earth and cares for man in such beautiful ways. So I think the application is clear. We, we need to daily rest in Christ in his finished work. We need to believe that God frees us. He's freed us from the tyranny and the desires to, to, to hold on to things and to, to gain as much as we can get. God's freed us from that. The gospel has caused us to love one another and forgive one another and live in a right manner with one another. And we, every day, we can walk, wake up and realize the new mercies of God and let the gospel give us a life of clarity and kindness and, and a desire to live at peace with all men as far as possible of ourselves. Well, fourth, we get into the year of Jubilee, and it highlights the grace of God. Notice verses 18 through 22. Here we see that God promises the nation that if they obey him, he would indeed provide for them so much in the sixth year that they would have enough for the seventh year. And again, the example is, is a manna. He's done that all along. They, they're there. They're listening to this. That day, uh, if it wasn't the Sabbath, that day when they woke up right outside their tent was this wafer that God rained down from heaven to help sustain them until they got into the promised land. He also set a lot of examples for them, even in their disobedience. I was thinking of this this morning as I was writing the sermon when they go into the 40 years and they're wandering around the wilderness doing laps out there, there's times where they do war with nations. And God says, take up, take up the sword and go fight these people and so forth. And then there's other times they show up and God says, go into that town and buy food for the people. Now, you, know, you think about this, there are two to, two to four million people walking around the wilderness as the older people are dying off. And they come up to a town and they got to buy food for everybody. Can you imagine what God did in that pagan nation for the years before that? The abundance of lamb crops and uh, lambs and crops that would have had to take so that they could supply this nation who was wandering around in the, uh, in the, war, wandering around in the wilderness and needing food. Isn't that a fascinating thing? See, God showed them all along, if you trust me, I will provide for you. For us, there's just so much great joy to obey God. You're never happier than when you're obeying God. If you really think about it, if you're, if you're a Christian with any age on you at all, you're never happier than when you're walking right with God. Money can't produce that kind of happiness. Intimacy, relationships, nothing can produce that type of joy. In fact, it makes all those other things so much better. 
And so for us, we look at this, and we know this is for the nation of Israel, but there's great lessons to learn that obeying God brings great joy. Joy is the first byproduct of obedience. It really causes us to rejoice. And the joy Christians experience when we do things like we give to the Lord even when we know it's tight. How many of you have done that regularly? Top of your budget, if you're like us, is our givings to the Lord. Before we pay any other bills, before we pay house payments, before we pay anything else, we give to the Lord. And, and there's times, we've 38 years of ministry, trust us, there was times we couldn't rub a couple of nickels together. But you say, God, I believe in you. I know what you've done. You sent your son for me. And you give. And you find great joy and satisfaction in that. There's a lot of concern with um, a lot of older leadership within the church of the next generations that are coming up. Will missions be supplied anymore? What's going to happen to the church because the young people don't give? And and, and without that kind of obedience, let's just take it off giving, but that when you don't obey in those fundamental principles of reaction to the gospel, reacting to the gospel in our giving, in our loving one another, forgiving one another, all those beautiful basic principles of Christianity, you will be robbed of joy. And when I read this stuff, I go, man, this nation had it. What a year of Jubilee would have been and said they all tried to figure out how to get around it. And how they disobeyed and they ended up in terrible judgment. The amount, of Israel, the amount of Israelites that died going into captivity is probably almost uncountable. But they couldn't learn to seek after God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, that we need to learn to seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to us. So we, we seem to train the next generation to go to college, go out there, get all you can get, get all that while you can. It's tough. And we don't teach them to, to, to pursue the kingdom of God, to pursue his righteousness. Oh, we put them in youth group and we maybe read a, a daily bread at dinner or something like that. But are we teaching the next generation to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Study Joshua. It's... A, it's Great book. I love the book of Joshua. Lots of great wars in there. I mean, it's just phenomenal to read. And then you get to the end. And you work your way into Judges and you go, another generation came along who did not know the Lord. What happened? Somewhere along, they kept, they kept, they stopped teaching that God owned their land. He owned everything. The houses they lived in, they did not build. The crops they had, they did not plant. God had given that to them. And that next generation failed to worship and appreciate God. And all kinds of horrors came to the nation of Israel. And I think we see that in our own lives sometimes. We see a new generation of so-called Christians growing up, pushing churches to adopt godless pagan views of gender and marriage and everything else. And they're not joyful. <laughs> now, well, us, us older people, we can be called cranky too ourselves, huh? Oh, you're not doing that here. We come off pretty rough. Are we joyful? Are you joyful in Christ? 
so much crud going on today, isn't there? And you can get really discouraged. You could read a tweet or watch this or watch that pretty soon. The younger generation is not as much worried about those things because they don't have enough upstairs to know right now, right? <laughs> Sorry, out there. We know. We know what kind of country we had. We know, we know where this is going, right? But yet we as Christians know there's a great God out there, isn't he? And he holds our future. Greatest jubilee ever is that Jesus Christ died on a cross personally for Scott's sin, forgave me for my past and present uh, sins, and my life is secured eternally with him. What can man do to me? We've got to pass it on to the next generation, brothers and sisters. Five, the land of Israel belongs to the Lord. Verse 23. This is a very beautiful word here, verse. Verse 23, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. That's very interesting, isn't it? For you are but aliens and sojourners, look at this, with me. Psalms 24.1 says that all the earth belongs to the Lord, right? But God seems to have a special regard for the land of Israel. And you just can't get around this if you have a good literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. He has a very strong concern for the land of Israel. I love the book of Zechariah. It gives such hope that you're going to see God make Israel this great, great statement of his grace someday, this remnant. He says in chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land and again will choose Jerusalem. He's promising these things and so he reminds them, look, we are just sojourners. We're aliens here. I'm, this isn't, I got something way better. And he wanted them to not hold on to these things. But it's so interesting, this geographic position that God could have put this anywhere on the earth chose uh, Jerusalem to be the center of so much attention, isn't it? But notice you are to be aliens and sojourners with me. This promise here, this land promise, is based on the fact that it belongs to God. They were never to lease it. I mean, excuse me, they could lease it, but it was never to be sold. And, and notice the greater promise here that the nation of Israelites were to see the promised land as a temporary dwelling place. And though it belonged to God, they were to look at the land on this earth as being strangers and aliens and sojourners with the Lord here. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, they say this, verse 13, all of these died in faith, these the, by faith, by faith, by faith group here, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them for a, from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, drop down to verse 16, but as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so the ones that lived by faith knew how to handle things correctly. And I love that thought. Those, those here who, by faith, believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that God is God's gospel and Christ has come to fulfill it, we put our hope in something far greater than this. And so we're a little careful what we're holding on to so tightly. If we have become attached to the things that God is going to destroy, 
we're probably going to lose our joy somewhere along the line. We're aliens. We're strangers. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. And so not only are we not, we're citizens of heaven, this is not our home, we're told not to hold on to these things. We don't belong here. And they're not only, not only that you don't belong here, is they're going to cause war in your soul. And I think that's what God wanted the nation of Israel to know. And that's why he said, give it up. Every, every seventh year, give these things back. Don't hold on to it. Give it back. Six, there's a connection between redeeming a relative and the land. Verse 24 through 28. And as you peruse down through that, let me give you some thoughts here. The redeeming of the land was accomplished through the redemption of a relative often. Here we come up with this idea, this term kinsman redeemer, the goel, right? That's... Hebrew word for it here. Um, and it was given to a close relative who had the right and the responsibility to do three essential things for his family as a, as a redeemer, as a goel. So the goel was to redeem a family member who, was, who had had to sell themselves into some kind of servitude or slavery. It's one of the things they were supposed to do. Two, they were to redeem a family's land or inheritance that was sold outside the family boundaries. And then three, they were to avenge the murder of a family member. That was the role of the Goel. Now, there's no better Old Testament description of a kinsman redeemer, the Goel, than, of course, Boaz and Ruth. What a beautiful love story that is. But you remember that story, right? After he realizes who she is and she's crawled under the blanket at the foot of his uh, bed there and... Uh, he puts his blanket over her and really demonstration, I'm even going to take care of you. He realizes, hmm, I'm not the next relative in line. I got a little bit of problem here. Uncle, uncle so-and-so's in line. So the next day he goes to the gate and there's uncle so-and-so. And he says, hey, good news. Naomi and Ruth have returned. And they have land and, and we can redeem it. And, but you're first in right. He goes, I'll take that land. Well, there's one problem. You get Naomi in the Moabite Ruth. He started calculating out, maybe thinking what the missus might think about this, and said, you know, I, I really don't think I really want to make this deal. And so whatever they did, spit on the hand, put it under their armpit, however that, or their thigh, or whatever they did there. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, redeems that land and gets Ruth. And so there's a connection between this redeeming of a relative and the lamb that's given here. But boy, when you start to think about Jesus Christ, Jesus redeems us from slavery of sin and Satan and death, and, and he's the ultimate picture of a kinsman redeemer. And he did it this way, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and following, he says, since the children shared in flesh and blood, he also likewise took part. The way I'm going to redeem these people is I have to go down and add their flesh to my divine nature. And he did this that through death, he's got to conquer death, he might render powerless him, that's Satan who has power over death, that is the devil, and that he might set free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So he takes care of death, he takes care of Satan, and he takes care of slavery. He's the greatest kinsman redeemer ever. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says we are being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption. Purchase, plan of God, right? He purchased us through Jesus Christ. And then second, we see that Jesus, through Jesus, our inheritance and our eternal position is restored. It's going to be so fun. I don't know if we'll do this or not, but man, I want to see the replay of the garden before sin. That's what God desired for is this eternal, intimate relationship with the Father and enjoyment walking with this triune God, and, and that's all lost. And so Christ returns to the earth and adds flesh to his deity. He reconciles Colossians 1.22. He reconciles us in his flesh, his bodily flesh, through death in order to present us before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. And then Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are his children. And so if we're children, we're heirs, and now we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. All restored. The greatest year of Jubilee you could ever imagine is when you got saved. You got brought into the family, and with it came everything God has. It's astounding, isn't it? Third, Jesus came to avenge the souls that sin and Satan murdered, in a sense, by defeating them at the cross. The Bible says that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. See, he's the kinsman redeemer. Who else could take on the devil? He's not God. He's not deity. But he's probably the highest and strongest created thing in the world, in the universe. And so the Son of God appeared. He came to this earth in the form of a babe, added flesh to his divine nature with the purpose to destroy the works of the devil because he's a kinsman, redeemer, and he purchases us and buys us back. So the Goel redeems people and property with money. That was the Old Testament. But the kinsman redeemer, the true redeemer, he redeems with blood. Hmm. F.B. Myers on this passage said this, we have been redeemed not with corruptible things but with the precious blood of Christ. We have been made free by right and have only to claim and act upon the freedom with which the risen Christ has made us free. Nobody richer in the world than the people sitting in this room right now. Seven, I gotta go quick here. Exception of house for houses that were within the walled city. 29 to 34 lays out this understanding that the rural lands of ancient Israel were extremely valuable. That's where they made their livelihood. But this law doesn't pertain to properties that were in these walled cities. They could buy and sell these things freely. Um, but the land seems to be extremely important to God, and you see that, right? He's very concerned about the land, and it's not to be sold. And if it is sold for one reason or another, it's to be released back at the end of those Sabbath years. However, in verses 33 through 34, there's exception given to the Levite tribe. Remember, they're not given land. Um, That tribe is not given plots of land, um, but they're there to serve the Lord um, and use land to farm it and things like that, but they were not given it. Eight, God's instructions for caring for the less fortunate, 35 through 38. Just quickly here, God gave Moses a set of commands that prohibits individuals from profiting from the misery of a poor neighbor, relative, or brother here. 
And you'll notice in verse 35, the, the command was very simple. You are to sustain him, or your Bible might say help him. So this was part of the command that it was, it was unlawful to charge interest rates for money. Uh, the Old Testament prophets um, lumped usury, high interest rates, with murder, adultery, and fornication when the prophets spoke of what the nation of Israel did. That's how God looks at when you take advantage of someone who is in need. <laughs> Nehemiah reminded the post-exiles that came over to repopulate the land of the sinfulness of usury as they established themselves. But Christ made similar commands. Luke chapter 6, verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that of you? Even sinners lean to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. He was chastising them that they had broken the law by having usury against their own people. I mean, look at verse 38 here, and I want to just highlight this verse real quick. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So God uses his kindness and generosity to be an example to the nation of Israel how to treat one another. And that's the same for you and I. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So God always uses himself as the example for his children to follow the Father, to follow the Son and how we treat one another. So be kind to one another, forgive one another. Be tender-hearted. Unfortunately, the church struggles at that at times, don't we? Nine, God's protection of the Hebrew indentured servant. Um, 39 through 46. Um, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for the ancient world for someone to sell themselves into slavery. There was difficult problems that came living in this ancient world. And here the law of Moses allows an Israelite um, to to not get away with treating his brethren as a slave. That's what that passage in 2 Chronicles was about in Jeremiah. They were taking their own brethren, Hebrews, males and females, and treating them as slaves. And this is to tell them that they weren't supposed to do this. In other words, slavery makes it impossible for the modern world to get their mind around. As soon as you say that, they're just gone, right? But for most of all of humanity, the poorest people in the world have been confronted with starvation. And often that's what happens. They end up selling themselves in order to survive. The alternative is death often. Now the word slave here in verse 39, if you look at that, is connected to verse 38. He's trying to remind them, you once were slaves. I pulled you out of slavery, so don't treat your brethren like slavery. Right? He's using the example of what he's done there. And so God never wanted his people to forget his grace and mercy. And that should dominate the way we treat each other. And the year of Jubilee was about wiping that out, forgetting those debts. I forgive you. Let's go on. Now it's new and afresh. And I think we have that in Jesus Christ, don't we? Notice in the following, um, following verse, verse 44, um, there's foreign slaves that are there. And, and they were... They were, um, they were taken in from debt or poverty... And did not have the same rights as the Israelite slaves. But 
But even there, in that role of slavery, Exodus 20 tells us that they were to treat humanely slaves that were not even of their people. So there's a clear difference between the slavery model of the Bible and that's what we've seen in our world, right? Most slavery is kidnapping. That's what it is, right? It was a result of plundering and pillaging and taking people away as their will. The Bible looks at slavery as something received uh, that willingly um, you receive to, to willingly to pay off a debt. It's, uh, it's not looked at as uh, the way slavery was looked at in our modern day. And then, you know, there's others. That they did have slaves from other nations, but the alternative was death, and so they allowed them to come and work with them. Now, I think because of the Christian gospel that we have, the year of Jubilee helps us reflect how we treat people. And I, I just wanted to get to this verse. I was reading Galatians 6.10 the other day, and I thought, wow, what a great thing. While you have opportunity, let us do good to all people. We'll stop right there. So as Christians, the gospel helps us treat the, the gal behind the counter at Publix in a, in a godly way, uh, treat uh, those who wait on us and serve us food at a restaurant or whatever. We're to treat people, we're to do good to all people. But then the verse, is, verse goes on to say, especially to those of the household of faith. And so our relationship should be marked by the goodness of God of how we treat one another. That's what the elders are after. I mean, we, we want a church where people walk in and they go, those people love one another. I want to be a part of that. There's something driving it. And then we get to tell them what's driving it, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, last thought here, 10. Redeeming a brother sold into slavery, uh, sold into slavery of the world, 45 through 55. If an Israelite was forced to sell himself to a stranger, right, or a sojourner, someone that wasn't an Israelite, the law encouraged family members to buy them out of that, right? So they were to buy them out, pay off the cost, and then they would serve that Israelite, that family member, until the year of Jubilee, and then they would be released from that. And that's what that last portion's about. Verse 55, for the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am their Lord God. We too are God's people, and we were bought with a price. But our price, that what we were bought with, was the precious blood of the Lamb of God for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so I don't think the church is the new Israel. Uh, you would have to change your hermeneutic to, to get there. But I do see this constant celebration of the year of Jubilee as a believer. I found great pleasure studying this. I found great joy that I was set free, my debts were paid, and I started anew the day the Lord saved me. And I hope you're encouraged by that. And that we go on to treat others with the utmost respect because we were forgiven. So fight for your joy. Don't give it away. Don't tight knuckle things. This is not our home. We're just what? Just passing through. Father, thanks for this time together. What a great passage of Scripture to, to understand first in its context for the nation of Israel. But, but the application, the biblical theology points forward to a year of jubilee found only in Jesus, the ultimate year of jubilee <laughs> that never goes away. In fact, once we're saved, we remain in the year of jubilee for our entire eternity. All because Jesus purchased us, bought us back.
and made us his own. Thank you for the restoration work you do in our lives, Lord. We would be in deep trouble. We would be lost forever. So we give you praise, Lord. May the saints be encouraged tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.